Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Society has been constructed around an economic system that focuses on the role of labor and capital, leaving land out of the equation. Because we've ignored the role of land, we've misunderstood ecological impacts of economic growth and the society inequality created around unearned income. In this episode, we first speak with Brian Check of the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy about his new book, Supply Shock, Economic Growth at the Crossroads and the Steady State Solution. And then in the second half of our show, we speak with Carl Fitzgerald, host of Renegade Economists on 3CR Radio in Melbourne, Australia. We talk with Carl about his film, Real Estate for Ransom, which covers speculative finance, land bubbles, and real estate bubbles, and the role of establishing a single tax on land to capture the unearned income that currently goes to private sources, and using that rather than income tax or any sort of business tax in order to finance the public. We are Justin and Seth, and you are listening to the Extra Environmentalist episode number 71. It's true that a lot of people in environmental issues, uh, environmental sciences and management don't find their way to this topic. In my case, uh, I was a wildlife biologist for a couple of decades prior to my PhD research in the 1990s. And I decided to go into shift out of field biology and into public policy. So I did a policy analysis of the Endangered Species Act for my PhD dissertation. And as part of that, part of that analysis, I'm looking at the causes of species endangerment in the United States. So I created this database of all of the federally listed threatened and endangered species. And then I established 18 categories that reflected what was causing the demise of each of these species. At the time, there were 877 listed species. And at the end of the day, or months actually, when I had this database populated, it just struck me that that this list of causes of endangerment, it was just a who's who of the American economy. And at the same time, I was supposed to be analyzing the social political context within which the Endangered Species Act functioned. And I couldn't help but notice that in the 1990s, especially, there was constant political rhetoric that there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. And it just didn't seem to square at all with this research that I'd done. So that's how I got into the topic. I'm wondering why an organization that's tasked with 
protecting the environment and regulating pollution like the EPA wouldn't look at the problem and start to advocate for some aspects of a steady state economy or policies that looked at the growth of the overall polluting sectors of the economy and and the economy and the material and energy consumption of the economy and then say, you know, this is actually what's driving a lot of our environmental problems. Why isn't that the case? I think the primary reason is political. It is simply that those folks who get appointed to the highest levels of the government, the cabinet level and the the agency directors and so on, they usually cannot get there if they are raising awareness of the conflict between economic growth and environmental protection. The conflict between growth and environmental protection There's got to be much wider public understanding and awareness of that conflict or trade-off before the president and very high-level appointees will deem it acceptable and operational, I guess you could say, politically, to direct their programs to deal with the topic and much less to actually go into macroeconomic policy and tinker with that to actually slow the rate of growth and eventually move toward a steady state economy. So it's primarily a political, Justin, but also, as you alluded to earlier, it simply is a disappointing fact that many folks in environmental academia never seem to get to the forest. They've looked at the trees so intently and in so much detail, but there's not much seeing the forest for the trees in the natural resource and environmental sciences and professions. Scientists tend to shy away almost from socio-political topics in general. They're more comfortable in dealing with laboratories and field experiments and simply studying the biophysical processes. So as a result, when it comes to drawing uh, the connections with the economy, they're more comfortable in simply handing that part off to conventional economists or or neoclassical economists who that's the brand of economists that dominates both in, in academia and professionally economics. And those folks, well, that's a long story. I go into this quite a bit in chapters four and five in Supply Shock about the corruption of economics and not so much today in this regard, but economists today have inherited a brand of economics that is very much unrooted from the land. And it goes back to a major episode of corruption at the turn of the last century, from the 19th to 20th century, and a backlash against a very prominent figure, Henry George, which I talk all about in the book. So let's go into that for a minute here because that's a really interesting aspect of your book and of the story that you weave of the corruption of the field of economics. And in classical economics, land was a factor in that equation of production and recognized as an important contributor to the production of economic goods and resources. And yet when the marginal revolution came along and when the modern form of neoclassical economics was developed, it became just 
capital and labor that were part of the production function and recognized as important factors in production, and that land could just be substituted for by capital. How did that transformation in economic thinking happen, and what were some of the factors that were driving it? When Henry George wrote his epic book, Progress and Poverty, which was published in 1878, he, as all the classical economists of the time, noted that factors of production are land, labor, and capital. But he also noted that land stood out in some very profound ways as a distinct factor of production because, for example, it's not something that more is being made of. You have a a set land base on the planet, and that's the land. His proposal was essentially to, you could say, socialize land in a sense that He wanted to institute a tax that would take away the the advantage that land barons had managed to gain over the the latter decades, especially of the 19th century. The land barons, big railroad, big oil, big timber, as well as a lot of just large landowners in the east. You know, they could sit there, they could speculate, take the land along the edge of the frontier and beyond, and then just wait until these masses of immigrants flooded into the country and the American economy grew into all the nooks and crannies of the landscape, and those land prices skyrocketed, and they became extremely wealthy. Well, Henry George and and many of his followers, it became a very powerful political movement to object to that process and to to call for a tax on land that would remove that advantage. And the response to that was the corruption of economics when people like John D. Rockefeller, for example, established the University of Chicago, one of the biggest land barons of all time, and establishing a university with an econ department that became by far the biggest and most powerful in the world. And having a department that was from the get-go, very much aligned against this proposal to tax land. And it's kind of a long story, but it turns out that's one of the mechanisms by which that land tax was evaded, was to simply marginalize land as a distinct factor of production. So these land barons essentially bankrolled economic departments that ignored the land and basically promoted these ideas that they felt to be really important as dogma. And is is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I should mention another book, which is simply called The Corruption of Economics by Mason Gaffney, which goes into this this history in great detail. I just found in Gaffney's book the answer that I had sought for so long to the question that, that Justin asked a few minutes ago, which is what happened to that production function? Why is it now production is a function of capital and labor? And land isn't even recognized front and center as a primary factor of production. So my contribution in supply shock is, you could say, sort of a corollary of Gaffney's broader thesis and history on the corruption of economics. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with who 
Henry George was and what his contribution was. You mentioned that he was advocating for this land tax, but a lot of people in the United States would be like, oh, you know, taxes, I never want more taxes. And could you explain kind of what that idea is and how a land value tax would essentially be used to not only solve many of the issues with economic distribution that we have, but also our ecological issues too? First of all, Henry George... He was a journalist. He was actually a, a quite a jack of all trades for much of his earlier life, but he became a, a journalist, fairly prominent. And when he wrote Progress and Poverty, that changed his whole life and it changed forever the politics in the U.S. and, and really around the world because what George was to the land baron was pretty much what Karl Marx was over in Europe to the capitalist. So whereas Marx wanted to socialize capital, you could say that is, that's essentially what Henry George was proposing with land. So when we say a tax on land, we're not talking here about how you're used to paying your property taxes to the city or the county. You know, we're talking about the full, what economists would call Ricardian rents of the land. That would be all of the advantage having that land would have economically so that you would still have title to the land. You would own the land, but your unearned, as George strongly argued, your unearned advantage in holding that land over time would be entirely negated. And because a lot of people at that time really didn't have any land, they were tenant farmers or extremely low-wage workers or homeless compared to very small segment of society that had the vast majority of the land, well, that explains right there the populist power of George's book, Progress and Poverty, and his proposal for a tax on land. It sounds like this tax is almost like a negative interest rate with the longer you hold the land, the less value it has. Is this correct? Uh, it's an interesting twist to put on it. I wouldn't quite put it that way, but it simply taxing the full, you could say, rental value of the land. You could still have everything else that you wanted to do. If you wanted to farm, you wanted to extract, you wanted to use the land for manufacturing activity or simply to host a call center, that would still be something you could do. But you now would be on an even playing field with all the other businesses out there that were conducting the same activities and so you would not have the advantage of owning your land. And the question arose before how that has some type of beneficial ecological effect. Well, frankly, there's not a very obvious synergy or even complementarity between what we would call Georgist and ecological economics. But I drew this connection or elaborated a fair bit in supply shock about Henry George and the corruption of the production function simply to explain what the heck happened to that production function. It's astounding to those who come from ecology and then study a little bit of economic history and recognize, as Justin was talking about before, that classical economists all talked about land, labor, and capital. And then fast forwarding into the mid 20th century, all of a sudden, all the textbooks, their basic production function says nothing about land. It's a shocker. 
And so my primary effort in connecting to Henry George was to explain what happened there. I'm just trying to wrap my head around this idea. You're saying that every industry is put on the same footing as every other industry based on the amount of land they hold. Uh, I'm not grasping that topic fully. If you can imagine that you want to farm somewhere, for example, and you're not a landowner, what do you have to do? You're going to have to rent the land. And the landowner doesn't necessarily have to do anything anymore. If he or she was fortunate enough to have speculated, inherited land and just sat there with a rapidly growing population and a burgeoning presence of the economy all around, everybody else is stuck paying them for something that they were able to really do with with little or no effort. And so what the tax on land does is it charges the landowner that rent that the you as the person who wanted to farm or manufacture or, or conduct services from would pay him or her. Okay, so it kind of negated the historical precedent of owning land and mitigates the fact that you're a super billionaire that has held land forever. Uh, it mitigates this fact a bit. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, it, it takes away much of the motivation to speculate on land, to drive up land prices, the boom and bust cycles that beat up the American West for decades, it would have stopped that type of pattern in its tracks. That's one of the reasons that Henry George became so popular, because if his tax on land had been implemented, it would have precluded that boom and bust cycle to a large extent. You know, not, there's no miracles or silver bullets anywhere, but it certainly would have dampened those boom-bust cycles tremendously. And we're going to move on here to another topic, but from my understanding, Henry George was even proposing using this land value tax in order to fund the majority or all of public budgets, essentially. There wouldn't even be an income tax. Is that right? Yeah, well, you, you wouldn't quite say there wouldn't be an income tax per se, but there wouldn't have been capital taxes. And yeah, there wouldn't have been the income tax that we think, yes, in terms of salaries and wages. That's correct. So that's another really main point in why it was such a dramatic proposal and such a powerful proposal for non-land barons because I think maybe Seth asked before, why were taxpayers in favor of this? Because they're generally against taxes. But yeah, this is the key point that the other taxes would have been gone and the extremely wealthy land barons would have been the ones providing, if you want to look at it, in a sense, disproportionate in terms of population, but in the sense of the available finances out there in the private sector that could go to public sector provision, then you would have to say that would be the proportionate way to go about it was to put the onus of the tax burden on those land barons. There's an incredible amount of momentum in the direction of economic growth and in so many of our institutions, whether we're talking about the legal structures that incentivize growth or the tax credits that many countries have to give you once you have more children, boosting the population growth. There's so many little ways that growth ideas filter into our society. So how do we start turning that around when you know, George Bush gets up after September 11th, 2001 and says what we really need to do is get out there and buy. And that's really the solution. 
that whole mantra of growth just permeates throughout our society. How do we turn that around and how do we put out another idea of some kind of alternative to economic growth? I think the main thing we need is many more discussions like the one we're having. So thanks to you guys, you're at least doing your part in getting this out into the media. We need to help the broader media to start connecting the dots. When we're looking at all these dreadful environmental problems, well, connect the dots. What's the real cause of them? And that's where you're going to wind up just like I did with the Endangered Species Act. They're going to connect back to economic activity. One thing that was actually unique about the Endangered Species Act that helped me to get to this place maybe a little more readily than others with different types of environmental policy is that, yes, it deals with a very sweeping proportion of the environment. You know, you might call what the ESA is protecting the economy of nature. The economy of nature consists of all the other or non-human species out there on the planet. And so as the human economy grows, that economy of nature declines. It's like a trade-off. And so it's fairly recognizable when it comes to the issue of biodiversity conservation. Not quite as easy to identify, I suppose, with narrower environmental problems like particular pollutants and so forth. But in any event, when journalists, when policymakers, when think tanks look at environmental degradation, not just in terms of little pieces, but in terms of the bigger picture, and then in terms of some of the issues that reflect the bigger picture, like biodiversity. We need to emphasize that this isn't just some isolated environmental problem, or it's not something that arose of its own. This is linked back to all that economic activity. Climate change is a classic example. In supply shock, I didn't spend a lot of time emphasizing climate change because there's like an extra layer of political baggage with that. You have people that don't want to acknowledge fully the greenhouse effect or that it's human economic activity that's exacerbating the greenhouse effect and causing global warming. But if you're reasonable about it and look at all the evidence, well, then it's plenty obvious that in a 90% fossil-fueled global economy, you're going to have climate change when you have economic growth. Yeah, it's almost like it's dogma, and it's so ingrained into our culture that bringing up these ideas, the fact that there's climate change or that our growth economy is not going to lead the country to any sort of direction that's sustainable, it kind of goes against the dogma that the culture promotes when you say things like, maybe we shouldn't have growth, or maybe we should have a steady-state economy, or maybe we shouldn't be motivated to grow, grow, grow. And these ideas that are put out by our political leaders and very much picked up by our media and broadcast to the whole world, Do you see any media currently that speaks out against these ideas and how do we get around the fact that growth is very much tied to our culture and even to nationalistic patriotism? There are not a lot of media that are presenting the, what we might call the ecologically economic vision. In terms of the media, it's primarily in books at this point where we find the connection between economic growth and all of these problems and where we find that growth is actually becoming uneconomic in the sense that it's causing more problems than it's solving. It's costing more than it's benefiting. So books, that's not the media, I guess, but there are some 
pockets of media that do manage to come out of academia now and then. But you guys are familiar, I think, with the ecological economics movement in academia. It, it helps greatly to have an academic base that then helps to inform those who, who end up going into public outreach. But what you'd normally think of media, like the broadcast media, yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't even seem to have gotten to the level of the, the NPRs of the country or the world yet. Well, of the country, I should specify that. I think certain other parts of the world, there is quite a bit more open discussion about the conflict between growth and the environment. Western Europe being one of those places, and actually China being another one of those places, even though they're still, you know, for social reasons, very much bent on growth, they, all the way up to the premier, they recognize that that trade-off between economic growth and environmental protection. And I remember, sweetheart, it was you and not I who said that we must part. trying to revive the economy. But this battle is being waged in the Netherlands, in England, in Spain, in Germany, in France, and on the editorial pages of the New York Times and the Wall Street and Journal. In the United States, I'm right here, and it's exactly right that this is, this is U.S., Europe, it's all of the high-income world. Japan, same issues. And what's, I think what is really striking is exactly what you say, the same debate we're having here is being had in each country you, you, you can pick around up the, Europe. You can pick up the Times of London every morning, and they're having the same debate over there. The stock market's at an all-time high, and the most recent economic data show better-than-expected numbers. But is the U.S. economy in a permanent slump? That's the question that Paul Krugman asked in his latest column. The evidence suggests we have become an economy whose normal state is one of mild depression, whose brief episodes of prosperity occur only thanks to bubbles and unsustainable borrowing. And it, it takes you back, I think it was 2009, The Onion did a story in the midst of the, the, you know, the Great Recession, nation demands new bubble to get economy going again. And if you think about it, we had the housing bubble, we had the dot-com bubble before that. You know, the, the recession of the early 1990s was really grim and people were saying the same kind of stuff back then before the dot-com boom, like this might be a new normal of low, slow growth. And people look, if you really step back and look what drives the economy, it is population growth and productivity. Right. Those are the two inputs. More people being more productive is what produces economic growth. Our population growth has slowed, but the main thing is, so what drives it? Consumer spending drives the economy. This is what Krugman's talking about, and obviously he's saying we need to spend more money. If, if, we, if we discovered that uh, you know, space aliens were planning to attack and we needed a, a massive buildup to counter the, the space alien threat um, and really inflation and budget deficits took secondary uh, place to that, um, this slump would be over in 18 months. And then if we discovered, whoops, we made a mistake. There aren't actually any space. So we need aliens. Orson Welles. Be a better, is what you're saying? No, that's a, that's a. There was a Twilight Zone episode like this in which uh, scientists fake a, uh, an alien threat in order to achieve world peace. Well, this time we don't need it. We need it in order to get some fiscal stimulus. If you could employ people to dig a ditch and then fill it up again, that's fine. They're being productively employed. Employed. They pay taxes. So maybe the big, maybe Boston's big dig was, was just fine after all. We're hopeful that the economy will continue to make progress and that we'll begin to see the, the whites of the eyes of the end of the recovery and the beginning of the uh, more normal period of, of economic growth. Hi everybody. There are some good things happening in our economy and that's been my top priority since the day I walked into the Oval Office. 
After decades in which the middle class was working harder and harder just to keep up, and a punishing recession that made it worse, we made the tough choices required not just to recover from the crisis, but to rebuild on a new foundation for stronger, more durable economic growth. Good jobs, a good education, a chance to buy a home, save, and retire. Because of your hard work and tough sacrifices over the past five years, we're pointed in the right direction. But we've got more work to do to keep moving that way. And as long as I'm president, I'll keep doing everything I can to create jobs, grow the economy, and make sure that everyone who works hard has a chance to get ahead. So today in the, in the United States of America, when millions of people were going uh, and, and shopping like crazy, there were a few million other people around the world who didn't buy a single thing. Oh, it's so hard to believe. Kali, I mean, Black Friday is like a tradition. People love to go out on this day and shop. We absolutely but, love it. Why do you want them to quit but, shopping? But think about it. After this very spiritual holiday of uh, Thanksgiving, why is it that our culture is somehow then requiring us to go out the next day and, and, and max out on our credit cards and, 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 and buy probably more than we need to buy? Overconsumption is in some sense the, the mother of all our environmental problems. Oh, come on, environmental problems? Yes, environmental problems. Every single purchase that you make has some kind of an impact on the planet. And, and we, the, the rich one billion of the people on the planet, are now consuming 86% of all the, the goods in the global marketplace, leaving a, a lousy 14% for the rest of the 5 billion people on the planet, and then we wonder why it has ecological, psychological, and, and political consequences. I believe that overconsumption in, in the rich countries of the world is one of the root causes of, of terrorism. I believe that this huge inequity, oh, 86 percent for the rich people, 14 if, if for the poor. If somebody wants to buy their kid an Elmo doll, what's the harm in that? Well, yeah, I mean, you make it sound so nice, but you know, if we, if we consume 86 percent and we leave only 14 percent for the rest of the 5 billion people on the planet, how do you think that makes them feel? What about, I know, forget about our kids, what about their kids? Well, I, I can understand that set, sentiment perfectly, but, 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 but buy nothing? Wouldn't that destroy the American economy? Well, yes, I think that if we suddenly all stop buying, then of course it would uh, hurt the economy, but only in the short term. Uh, you have to think about the long-term consequences of the kind of uh, business culture that we have built up. Uh, right after the Second World War, uh, we only consumed very frugally, and, and we have increased our consumption by 300%. The, the average consumer today consumes three times more than the average consumer did uh, right after the Second World War. We've got a lot more money now. Kali Lawson, we've got to leave it there. Money, but our happiness has not gone up. Not well, even I by would 1%. hope that that's not true. Kali Lawson, thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate it. You're listening to episode number 71 of The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with author Brian Check of the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy about his new book, Supply Shock. We've had a lot of people on our show talking about issues of peak oil and climate change and resource depletion and non-renewable resource depletion and water issues and essentially all of these cascading environmental crises that we have in our society. What's your view on how the supply shock plays out as economic growth runs into these limits of our planet? As you know, in my book, I have some emphasis, especially at the beginning, on water because Water is almost 
unappreciative to refer to it as the lifeblood of the economy, but it is at the very least the lifeblood of, of the people. Yeah, it's number one in terms of our needs. And economic growth puts more and more of a strain on our water supplies. People get misled, I think, by these fuzzy notions of information economy and green growth. And this is something I really try to get squared away in supply shock. And perhaps it's maybe one of the more unique contributions because I tie directly into all of my old training in, in wildlife management and ecology, in particular, the, the concept of trophic levels. And so I tie this into what I call the trophic theory of money, but it's actually a fairly simple principle. And it's that in the economy of nature and all the non-human species, all the animals are dependent upon plant production. I mean, it's photosynthesis by plants at the foundation of that economy of nature. And then you have primary consumers that eat the plants and secondary consumers that eat the primary consumers and, and so on. But there's nothing without the photosynthesis and surplus plant production. Well, it's the same thing in the human economy. You can talk all you want about information and going green and blah, blah, but you have got to have agricultural surplus at the base to enable any of the other sectors to even exist. If all you can feed is yourself, you're not going to be making clothes, much less computers for somebody else. You're going to be with your hands in the soil. So this is the, the basic relationship of the agricultural and extractive sectors and energy to the rest of the economy. It's the foundation. And if you want a growing economy, you have to have your footprint because you must have more agro-extractive surplus. What does that mean for the process of innovation, R&D, technological development? How does that play into the whole process that you're talking about on trophic levels in our economy? So we've established that the amount of real money in the economy is a reflection of agro-extractive surplus because that's the foundation of the economy and all the goods and services exchanged in the economy for money, well, that amount of money then reflects at the base the agro-extractive footprint. Now you go to the issue of technological progress and this is perhaps the most complex and technically most difficult portion of sustainability science. And it's where people get tripped up, I think, left and right if they don't really delve into this deeply. Because technological progress tends to be viewed as manna from heaven. You know, it just somehow happens. And because it happens, we will be able to produce more efficiently all along, more output per unit input so we can somehow dematerialize the economy eventually even. Well, the fact that it doesn't rain down like manna from heaven, technological progress that is, the fact that it's not manna from heaven is really more than just a, a little trivial point. It's profound. It takes money. It takes big time investment at this stage in the U.S. to try to ring out some more efficiency in the economic system to the tune of about $300 billion of research and development, or R&D, annually. And 
now that we know that that money originates in agro-extractive surplus pursuant to the trophics of money, well, what do we have here? It's not a win-win scenario at all. We're increasing our footprint to try to raise the bar for further economic growth with technological progress. And then even if you do manage to get more efficient with that technological progress, well, then how long do you grow with that next technological structure of your economy? Because at that level of technology, you continue with the process of growth, you're back to where you started. You're you're at some point after it's no longer new and you are adding to the ecological footprint through economic growth. So the real upshot is there's no physical, biological, real way around the fundamental conflict between economic growth and environmental protection. So what you're saying is if you visualize the whole economy as a pyramid, in order to add some bits to the top of the technological part that would be at the top of the pyramid, you have to add more to the base of the pyramid and make that pyramid larger. Yep. I'd say that's a fair way of stating it. Maybe to add a little bit there, you you simply have to have more and more agricultural and extractive surplus to free more and more hands for the division of labor into activities such as R&D or research and development. With that in mind then, how does a business transform to actively become part of the steady state economy, to be innovative, to become a contributing member of this economy and make a profit? I think in the transition to a steady state economy, and and this is a tough facet of that transition, but the typical corporation or or smaller business is, is not really the place to start in thinking of it, and they probably won't be leading the way toward that. I think the bigger plays, if you will, have to occur in macroeconomic policymaking that then do affect the corporate behavior, availability of funding, the rules of competition. Cap and trade, that's a classic example. It's not something that's going to arise organically that the oil companies will establish a cap on the level of petroleum extracted or refined every year. That's something that's going to have to be done by us, the the people in a constitutional democracy. But once it's done, then they can respond. They can react, frankly, just how they have always done, by competing among each other to become more efficient, be more resourceful, so to speak, and within that cap. And Let's face it, the steady state economy, it's not a free lunch. There will be winners and losers. But that's one of the reasons why in ecological economics, we don't really believe in laissez-faire capitalism. You know, we're not wild-eyed Marxists or anything either. There is room for a market, of course, of goods and services, just as there is the need for public sectors including the provision of some very major goods and services. I just can't help but think that as we transition into this new way of thinking, they're going to be fighting back every step of the way. Uh, They're going to be pushing back and influencing government. They're going to be saying, no, this is wrong. This is anti-American. This is anti-capitalist. And kicking and screaming into this new economy until it hits and they say, oh, we're we're a part of it now. This transition is going to be painful. It's going to be so painful for businesses for sure. Yeah. No, I I agree. 
you know, it could be that we're never quite able to succeed during our lifetimes, let's say, especially my lifetime. You guys are younger, but the measure of success, I think we can't really claim too much success until the steady state economy becomes an explicit formal goal of policymakers. And you're right, the corporate community and Wall Street and Madison Avenue and so on will fight that all the way. How can we have that as a goal of policymakers if they're so influenced by business right now? That makes it so much tougher, but they're not influenced only by business. They maybe disproportionately, yes, certainly yes, but but not only. And so it will take a lot of public awareness, a lot of connecting the dots of our problems. Oh, well, here's something for you that hasn't really come out yet. And this may help to really answer the question as well. We have to not only connect the dots from economic activity to environmental problems, but then go through the sequence with a degraded environment. You're essentially pulling the rug out of the future economy because we do know that land and natural resources and the capacity of the earth to absorb more pollutants, those are absolutely essential resources for economic activity. And in other words, those are essential resources for our kids and and grandkids' jobs. So all this talk about full employment and and not having such high rates of unemployment, if we're concerned at all about posterity, that means environmental protection. So environmental protection is connected to economic sustainability, and that's connected, I think fairly obviously, to national security, and it's connected to international stability. So I think that will help us to advance the steady-state economy that's ultimately accepted and desired by a large majority of Americans as well as other peoples around the world. The major challenge for our species is this ecological crisis that we're facing and that the scale of our civilization is so large that the question becomes, do we need a period of economic contraction before we reach a steady state? How would that structure into a framework for a steady state economy in the future? one paradigm shift at a time. (laughs) It's one thing to encourage a transition from economic growth to a steady state economy, but then it's another major sell, if you want to put it that way, to actually go toward a policy of degrowth. But nevertheless, there are degrowth movements around the world recognizing what you just said, and especially in Western Europe. And I would say technically the argument is sound. If we're too far beyond capacity already, then a period of degrowth is required. But it's a matter of who, where, at what particular time does the degrowth, whereas in other places there certainly is some economic growth needed. One more thing I'd say about that, and it's an encouraging thing, is that in the U.S., for example, we could probably actually handle Despite all the hand-wringing now about no economic growth and stuff, we could handle a certain amount of thinning down because there's a lot of fat in this economy. You know, the waterfowl, waterfalls at casinos in Las Vegas, there's Hummers out on the street, there's NASCAR as a huge entertainment sector. All these things can be weeded out without really hurting anybody in a way that really matters. And so... 
you know, I think that there is a legitimate prospect for thinning down and without necessarily having to go immediately into a phase of degrowth. It's hard for me to think of a way to have that degrowth without a large amount of reaction from the populace. Population responds to having a gun against their head. That's the really only way to affect change in a government. Leads me to think that it's just going to hit harder in places like the United States where these things go until they just hit the wall and explode. Do the trends in Europe reflect things that are going to happen in the United States or is it something different? Sadly enough, I, I think your assessment there makes a lot of sense. And this is why I devoted much of the last chapter of Supply Shock to what I call steady statesmanship in international diplomacy. Because your point there about people and, and you're talking about countries in particular only doing something when the gun's put to their head, it's a figure of speech, but it's quite literally been the case in a in a lot of unfortunate cases. So that's why I think steady statesmanship, in other words, the raising awareness of the conflict between growth and these other things and advancing the, the precepts of steady state economics and developing a diplomacy that raises special awareness of the unjust maldistribution of ecological footprints around the planet. That's the only way I can see out of the warfaring result that you're talking about that would hit the reset button, if you will, violently. And then nations are left after that to scrum out some sort of steady state pack, theoretically. The only real alternative to that is well-developed steady statesmanship. And frankly, it's probably going to have to come largely from countries outside of the U.S., while some of us in the U.S. at least try to open the ears of the body politic here. One of the big drivers of growth in our economy in the U.S., in Canada, and around the world is that when our money enters into existence, the debt is created with it. And to pay back that debt, we have to go and extract more resources to pay it back. What changes do you see happening in money or in finance to make a steady state economy happen? Would, let's say, uh, Obama announces a steady state economy and says that's our policy goal, wouldn't financial markets crash like right after? I think that it's a possibility. You know, things like this don't happen at the flick of a wrist. Obama wouldn't just come out and say that someday without a lot of groundwork having been laid previously. And that would have given financial institutions some time to prepare and adjust and even position themselves to take advantage of it. You know, financial institutions are extremely creative in their instrumentation, if you will. And it would have to be a real stupid sort of political blunder to cause a widespread collapse of the financial system simply by moving toward a steady state economy. Do you have some examples of some policies that governments might enact? Sure. I think what I would like to emphasize the most is that we would look at all the existing policies, and there are many of them, fiscal and, and monetary and, and trade policies that are set fully with the intention of economic growth policies that were created particularly to stimulate the economy. Those levers and buttons 
need to gradually be set backward, back toward a steady state, not in a shocking fashion, but, you know, in a gradual fashion. That's the emphasis I think I would put on policy reform. And in, in supply shock, I do have a policy framework that includes many other sort of very progressive or new types of arrangements. I guess I will mention one more, which establishes this really, I think, important step of putting the horse before the cart, and that is amending the Full Employment Act to make that a full and sustainable employment act. And in an act of Congress, you know, at the beginning, Congress will typically as they say, find and declare. So I envision a a major amendment to the Full Employment Act where Congress finds and declares that there's a limit to economic growth and there's a conflict between growth and environmental protection and all these things that we've talked about in the past hour and then goes on to lay out the particulars of moving toward a steady state economy. We were just discussing federal level policies. Let's say a city or a state in the United States gets a mayor or a governor elected and that mayor or governor says, we're going to make the steady state economy a policy goal, what would that person do? Well, they would do the same thing. They would start by taking all the existing pro-growth policies and setting the adjustments gradually back. But, you know, the politician, here's another thing we haven't really talked about. The politician has a very major role to play in establishing what a Keynesian economist might call the propensity to consume. And that alone has a tremendous effect on whether or not you have a growing or a steady state economy. So we need political governors and mayors. If you look at you know, the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy has a position on economic growth. People can sign it. There are very few politicians so far that have, but there are some mayors, the Wisconsin Secretary of State. So, you know, little by little, the precepts and and also the cultural aspects, the conscientious rather than conspicuous consumption needs to be furthered by political dialogue. Do you think that someone like Barack Obama or Ben Bernanke has ever thought about economic growth in a critical way in the way that you talk about it in your book or the way that we discuss it on our show? Have they really thought about the implications of a steady state economy? If I had to guess, I think Obama has, and I actually write about this in the book too. If you go back to late summer before his first term, I think if you look for an article called Obamanomics that was, as I recall, in the New York Times, and I've got the particular piece of it that's relevant to this quoted in Supply Shock, you'll find that he was aware of the need for a paradigm shift in economic thinking to make the economic system sustainable. That to me sounds like real awareness of limits to growth and the need to move toward a different goal. Ben Bernanke, I'm not sure, but if you don't mind, I would like to mention somebody else who, if he hadn't heard of it, would be certainly amenable or interested, and that's Henry Paulson, the past Treasury Secretary who 
probably most people associate with so much horrific fiscal and financial crisis. But Paulson was also, as I recall, the president of the Nature Conservancy and a self-proclaimed major conservationist. So I think that with a little bit of discussion like the one we've been having for the past hour, if Paulson isn't already there by, you know, doing some homework here and there since he retired, that he would be one to get these things. So to close out, if you'll just tell us a little bit about the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, what is it that the group does? What are you working on? And how can people find out more about your work? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Well, the the mission of the center, we use the acronym CASI. The mission of CASI is to advance the steady state economy as a policy goal with widespread public support. And one of the major ways that we do that is by raising awareness of problems caused by economic growth. In particular, the fundamental conflict between economic growth and environmental protection and then economic sustainability and national security and international stability. CASI is, is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We're primarily about this outreach effort. We do have an educational position on economic growth. People can read that. It's only 16 sentences. And we have many top-name scientists and sustainability thinkers and some other notable people from the media and politics and so forth as Cassie signatories. If you go to steadystate.org, you will find the position very readily. And it's one way of advancing the steady-state economy because it helps us to demonstrate to politicians the, the burgeoning support for this. We also assist other organizations that themselves are developing educational and outreach programs on limits to growth and steady state economics. In fact, right now, approximately 200 organizations that have endorsed the CASI position on economic growth. And by the way, I really want to emphasize there is no place on the political spectrum, the typical left to right kind of political spectrum that we tend to think in terms of in the U.S. There's no place on there where Cassie resides. I mean, Cassie is, is an umbrella, apartisan, nonpartisan, however you want to call it. We have much in common with everybody out there who's concerned about their kids and their grandkids. So... We have plenty of connection with the two main political parties as well as the Green parties and others. We help to develop educational curricula in colleges and universities. We are involved in a lot of writing ourselves. We have a blog called The Daily News, D-A-L-Y, after Herman Daly, generally considered the father of steady state economics. And so we have a lot. I would just encourage folks to Check it out at SteadyState.org.
Feels like home. Your Duck Dynasty headquarters. Greetings, Earthlings. This is a very real and convincing alien invasion. I am on a very real but impossible to detect spaceship hovering above your planet. I plan to invade sometime in a random moment in the coming years. The only match for my otherworldly technologies will be pulling economic growth out of every cavity of the planet Earth, out of Saturn, out of Mars, and eventually out of Uranus. Hey Jim, I mean Saltar, don't forget to mention that stuff like it's definitely not my bubble. <laughs> yes, my fellow alien invader just wanted me to remind you to keep putting all of your money into the stock market. Quantitative easing will go on to infinity and beyond. That Paul Krugerman deserves more Nobel Prizes from your species. So take heed of my warning, Earthlings. Begin digging holes and filling them back up to generate the growth needed to defeat me. This is Zoltar, signing out back to your regularly scheduled programming. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, episode number 71, and we're speaking with Carl Fitzgerald about land taxes, real estate speculation, and his film, Real Estate for Ransom. It is well known that the, the what they call a housing bubble, which is really the land bubble, and this is one of the misinformations that's out there, is that houses depreciate the moment you buy them, and uh, it's the land, the location that keeps going up in value. And in um, the first quarter of 2006 in America, land prices started to correct. And this was the first time that had happened in about 15 odd years. And by early 2007, banks were having to write down their books, couldn't lend out as much, and the credit crisis started to bite. And so all around the world over the last 200, 300 years, you know, right back to the enclosures of the commons in England, and there's been a, a, a tragic reversal in the way government raises their finance. Back in those feudal times, the, the landed gentry used to um, finance the roads and the military to protect their lands. And that was the, the big government expenditure. But uh, over time, that has um, switched around so that uh, those who actually work pay for the running of government and those who are lucky enough to buy and sell the earth get off basically scot-free. Oh, so you're saying that in olden times, the, the rich and the wealthy used to fund the wars and all the, and the roads and the land improvements. When did that start changing? When did that start flipping around? Around about the 1300s, 1400s. And yeah, there's some phenomenal work that uh, happened back in the Corn Law debates in the, the 1800s by Richard Cobden, which showed that when those who enjoyed the bounty of the earth actually paid for the running of government, that uh, working class people really only had to work a couple of days a week 
know, n- none of these 40, 60, 70 hour weeks that we've got today just to try and um, pay off our mortgage and do all the other things we need to do. But over time, uh, the wealthy have been able to sculpt the way we analyze economics and basically send us down all these these rabbit holes and that's really a theme that we come back to a lot of times in the interviews that we do on our show on the extra environmentalist and that aspect of what we learn about in education really shapes what even enters into public policy debates and uh, the kinds of discussions around any sort of tax or government policy, why is it that we don't learn about land taxes and about Henry George's ideas as a public policy option? Yeah, well, really, he crystallized what so many of the other classical thinkers back in that time had talked about. You know, Adam Smith, uh, David Ricardo, John Stuart Mill, and, and even Karl Marx, they all said that this unearned income was really the bounty uh, that should be shared amongst all of community. And once it, you know, Henry George released this book, Progress and Poverty, it sold millions of copies. And, that, you know, he took to its logical conclusion what others had suggested that this revenue stream was significant and he said well hang on a minute it could actually finance all of government and so when we talk about land it's not just urban land and rural land it technically means all the resources below us and all the resources above us so from the electromagnetic spectrum down to some of the rare earths that are out there the resources that go up in value without anyone having to do any real productive work scarcity rents they call them this same sort of monopoly principle applies to our licensed monopolies the government granted monopolies as well it's a massive story and really just i think it was 1886 uh, just seven years after george released his um, his big book progress and poverty the american economic association was set up and these guys uh, through richard eli and john b clark started cloaking the difference between capital and labor and uh, from this we moved from a a three dimensional economic system to a two dimensional economy where land representing the earth was decried to be a subset of capital and this was a really contentious issue that caused a lot of concern because you know land is created it's been given to us all to share in, in the best way possible and capital is something that you have to actually build and over time it depreciates so they have very different qualities and by placing land as a subset of capital it really hid the role of land related bubbles and this immense unearned income that can be earned from those who own the earth without having to do any work and you see that in the economic policy focus in that uh, government is first and foremost concerned about inflation because they've got to look after capital. And secondly, they're worried about unemployment because they want to keep labor happy. The, the role of these land bubbles are, are really ignored from the policy frameworks. And speaking about land bubbles, uh, you're in Melbourne, Australia. Could you talk to us a little bit about how the housing bubble has played out there? Yeah, well, here in Melbourne, we've expanded the size of the city. Um, the developers have said, look, you've got, uh, there's not enough land here. Um, here we are in this huge wide continent 23 million people and uh, we put this urban growth boundary around the city and once you put an urban growth boundary around it 
it works beautifully for those who already own property because it constricts supply, forcing up prices. And and then those who are outside the boundary, the, the land prices are fall down because they don't have what's known as the golden pen tick turning land from farmland into residential land. And so over the last decade, the government has given the property lobby, uh, uh, we've expanded the size of Melbourne by about the same size as Canberra, by about, you know, about 15%. And last year when land prices were falling, so we're a few years behind the American cycle, land prices were falling at the second fastest rate since 1936, the development lobby went around and, and pulled all this property off the market. And uh, in one of our main growth corridors here in uh, the Shire of uh, Mitchell in Whittlesea, they pulled 58% of the land off the market in this uh, beautiful manoeuvre uh, of nicknamed real estate for ransom and uh, choked prices so that affordability couldn't be really delivered. So, uh, yeah, the, the boom is, is we, we had a, a moderation here. Prices fell about 13% in real terms. Um, between the peak at mid-2010 and, and probably uh, the first quarter here of 2013. But with record low interest rates, the government has pulled out a few new tricks to keep the bubble going. They've allowed baby boomers through their self-managed super funds to be able to buy and sell real estate and pay zero capital gains tax. And, you know, the mobility of capital just keeps on building and building. And so um, got lots of foreign investment coming through and uh, like Vancouver, London and a handful of other cities around the world, Sydney especially, um, this is the global plaything for those who love to um, buy and sell from a hammock in the Bahamas on their mobile phone. So could you uh, compare like a house price? to what, what were the houses going for? before and after the bubble well an example is my own house i bought it in 2007 which you know was uh, we'd been kicking up uh, here on the property uh, price ladder since 1999 when uh, our conservative government halved the capital gains tax rate here and prices just boomed but i bought a property for 230,000 and um, now it's valued at at least uh, 450 and the median price in Australia is around about $550,000. Wow, the median is five hundred fifty in Australia. It's a monster. Yes, so people are, are paying, <laughs> you know, 2000 bucks uh, a month for somewhere to live. And, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at um, properties in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, you know, for 80-odd thousand going, geez, maybe we should just move there. <laughs> now, now, if someone wants to buy, like, a, you know, a detached single-family home in a place like Melbourne, what would that run? Well, a reasonable, you know, a pretty good one is, is 700 to 800. Um, but increasingly, especially in Sydney, it's over a million dollars is your starting point. And, uh, you know, there's... I don't really like to talk about it too much, but the the prevalence of, of foreign investors is really jumping up and there's a lot of concern in China with the new administration there that they're going to put a clamp on capital flowing out of the country to try and uh, really push their, their own internal economy along. And uh, so there's many examples of off-the-plan apartments being sold uh, at some 80 to 95% to Chinese investors alone. And we have a lot of the same dynamics playing out in Vancouver. It's very similar with the whole real estate for ransom dynamic where basically 
a lot of people are holding on to properties that they own and keeping them vacant where they would otherwise be selling them into a market that's actually decreasing. And so instead of putting it on the market, putting their property on the market and then having the market price fall, they're just keeping it empty and keeping it off the market. One of our architecture firms here in Vancouver, uh, being Tom, they paid one of their architects to do a study on vacancy rates in an area of downtown Vancouver. And so he was looking at the electricity use and found a baseline for essentially what, you know, a single apartment or flat would would look like in its energy use profile if they just had a refrigerator running and otherwise it was vacant. And he found that, you know, essentially in downtown Vancouver, there's something like more than a dozen towers equivalent of just empty condos. And it's not like downtown Vancouver is as big as Manhattan or anything. You know, we've got not that many towers. So to find that there's, uh, you know, so many vacant condos, it's really crazy. A lot of people in Vancouver like to blame the property developers. They demonize the property developers. Is this something that we should blame the developers for? Or, you know, who's really at fault here? Well, it's really the system. You know, it's very easy to target individuals, but really it's the tax system that globally is begging people to buy and sell real estate. And we've seen this immense consolidation of capital through these multinational companies who uh, just buy up any small business that's challenging them. And it seems like the real estate market is the last domain of uh, anyone wanting to be remotely entrepreneurial. And the tragedy is that this just has so many costs that uh, are thrown onto society. And, you know, we'd really love to see the tax system sculpted so that instead of these uh, secret subsidies going to property investors that amount, uh, according to some reports, to um, some $50 billion a year here in Australia, basically three times the level of what anyone in public housing is getting or any renters are getting. Just uh, unbelievable how many vacant properties are out there. And the Chinese state grid power company did a similar electricity-based study for vacancy, and they found a staggering 65.4 million empty apartment shells. And that was in 2010. And uh, well, the, In China, they make these huge apartment buildings and they just they make whole cities where they don't live in them, right? Because that they're sequestering resources and they're boosting the economy that way. Yeah, right? the, the global Ponzi game, uh, you know, it's great for Australia's iron ore exports, but, uh, you know, the people there are screaming at the pains. They're going on. Oh, I saw in Beijing and Shanghai prices have gone up 20% in just 10 months this year. And the government there is trying to do something to curb property speculation, but it's just well out of hand. And here in Australia as a cyclist, got, I think about 12 different think tanks set up to basically keep this education diversion going. And anytime we get our heads up in the press, uh, they're there and ready to uh, shoot us down with all their well-paid publicity stuff and, and bogus reports. And yeah, in 2007, there was uh, this talk of record low vacancy rates and there's nowhere to live and we need to expand the size of the city. And uh, I was cycling around seeing all these vacant properties all the time going, this is absolutely rubbish I've got to count this up and so the first year we did a study um, riding around on bikes and counting them in just one ward of Melbourne but the next year we used water consumption as a proxy for vacancy and so we used 50 litres of water as a cutoff it's about 177 litres on average for a single person home here in Australia and uh, we thought that was fairly conservative we've found uh, vacancy rates three times higher than what the real estate industry promotes and we've found uh, some 
64,000 empty properties here. The surrounding, you know, one of our main hipster radio stations, there was over 2,100 empty properties in, in, you know, those five or six suburbs surrounding it. And properties are being built and then held empty uh, and and just flipped again. And so people always find ways, um, you know, they move back home with their parents, they throw a caravan in the side of a friend's house. Um, you know, there's many stories of uh, 13, 14 people living in the same sort of house. Uh, all these trends come through when rents are just so high and we all have to scrape uh, through our weekly budget to try and find some money for organic food or, or uh, you know, uh, a new pair of shoes. And so um, we, we, we just have this immense burden placed on society by having to pay such high rents for what should be a human right. Prior to 2008 in the United States, we were all raged about mortgage-backed securities. And you, recently you wrote about rental-backed securities. Do you see that as the new big financial tool instrument that's going to be coming out soon? Yeah, that Truth Out article, The Mystery of Unearned Income, uh, talked about rental-backed securities. There's been some hype about them for about the last year or so, and we've been paying a lot of attention to the world's biggest private equity uh, firm, Blackstone Capital. These guys are spending something like $100 million a week buying up real estate around the world and they launched rental backed securities onto the market maybe a month or so ago and the yields they got were above market expectations and this is a bit of a slap in the face for all these mum and dad investors who have been out there claiming this unearned income. Now uh, corporate capital is coming in and setting up a large management bureaucracies to coordinate these thousands and thousands of uh, empty properties. And yeah, there was an article in Truth Out, The Empire Strikes Back, How Wall Street Has Turned Housing Into a Dangerous Get Rich Scheme. They show all these um, properties coming through in Charlotte in North Carolina and um, just can't believe how many properties they've bought up there. I think you guys are from that area. Are you noticing much of that? Yeah, Justin is actually from Charlotte, right, Justin? Yeah, I, I'm from Charlotte, and it was really funny immediately after the 2008 crash how billboards just started going up all around the city that said smart people are buying houses now, you know, keep buying houses. And it's so deeply ingrained in the media and in advertising and in just common conversation, you know, buy a house and, and sit on it. And a lot of people are saying, you know, housing's back in the United States. But what you're talking about is that these big institutional investors are coming in and using the really competitive interest rates the, that they're able to get through Federal Reserve monetary policy decisions to go in and just buy up a bunch of houses. Yeah, and they're, they're selling these rental back securities to the market and using that capital to buy this real estate state, the rental streams from those investments will pay back these holders of these securities. And uh, the rates of return that we're seeing are, are over 15 to 20%. Wow. So why would you um, deposit your money in a bank when you can get that return? Why would you even invest in the share market? And so this is the scary thing that's going on. We're seeing this global race for unearned income where people can just buy and sell a property in a couple of years and earn some 30, 50, maybe even more thousand dollars. And this is where we need to really concentrate on how the land tax mechanism works. And I sort of have this bit of a saying saying that land tax is the counterweight to mortgage debt. And land tax really is a holding charge on owning property. It's not based on the actual transaction, the turnover, but it's based on the length of time you hold it. 
it. And so the longer you hold it, the more land tax you'll pay and the more likely it is you'll need to earn some genuine rental income. And so uh, in America, it's just been released that there's a, a over 10% vacancy rate there. It's probably higher. A lot of banks don't put all their properties on the market. They just hold them off and drip feed them to the market to keep prices moving in onwards and upwards. Here in Australia, the holding charges are about $1,200 on a uh, an average size block of land, but the capital gains are again around this $30,000 mark per annum. So there's really no incentive to put that property on the market and uh, rent it out. And this is uh, where the bubble comes in and bubbles really are defined by the difference between what the property can earn in terms of rent versus its actual price. And what you do is you calculate the amount of rent you're paying and times that by 20 years and that should give you a, a value. And the difference between value and price is essentially value is what a property logically can earn, whereas price is what a speculator can basically con the market into paying. Basically, what you're saying is that large corporation banks are buying up large amounts of properties and drip feeding them to the markets so that they can keep the demand in play. And also, you're also saying that the tax on holding one of those properties is so low that it doesn't even matter if they're holding those properties. Is, is that what you're saying there? Yeah, it doesn't matter whether they rent it out or not. And here in Australia, they can rent them for about 17 grand. But uh, when the capital gains are about double that, uh, why would you bother having someone uh, risk kicking in your uh, kitchen wall? or whatnot. So uh, yeah, that, that's the game that's going on. It's it's underwriting this debt-based Ponzi game. And we like to say that if you have a decent land tax in place, it won't allow this debt to really kick in. Rational people will only pay what you can earn from a property. And so they'll look at it and say, look, the median income for this area is, you know, 48 grand a year. I'm willing to pay 25% of that for somewhere to live. And they'll times that over 20 years and say, that's all I'm going to pay. And uh, in a way, land tax is that yearly payment that you'll be making. And instead of it going to the banks predominantly, it goes to government to pay for the removal of income tax. And dare I say it, even company tax, because company tax has so many loopholes in it that people are just uh, walking right through, flying right through to the Bahamas and whatnot. Uh, this is why economists are starting to really push this return back to this old classical economic framework of what they call the tax shift off these mobile capital-based incomes that can be hidden in these tax havens or various forms of family trust. There's so many different ways to avoid paying tax if you're wealthy enough to employ a decent accountant. But if you've got a piece of land, it's very hard to hide that. If you, you own a mine, it's very hard to hide that as well. You know, If you're a water trader, if you own some of the electromagnetic spectrum, all these things can be easily quantifiable and this is why we're excited that uh, you know this ancient future form of revenue raising is an important development if we want to return back to a more sustainable economy. And, and so you're talking about the idea of a tax, and I don't know if it's that way in Australia, but at least in the United States, whenever anyone brings up the idea of a tax, it's, you know, kind of like this hyperbolic response to, you know, new taxes or raising taxes and these sorts of things. How is a land tax different from a property tax that already so many municipalities have? 
Yeah, well, don't people just cringe when you talk about that term property tax? And this is part of the conditioning that uh, all these right-wing think tanks have been uh, planting in the media for for generations now. And uh, a property tax is uh, a horror scenario because it, it taxes mainly the buildings as well as the land. And so uh, we have it here in Australia. This U.S. curse uh, of property taxes is spreading around the world to really bastardize and deter any move back to uh, this system of capturing unearned income. And so we put some solar panels, a water tank on our house, and of course our local municipal rates, uh, our, our local property taxes in U.S. terms, uh, went up. Uh, and but uh, if you're a property speculator and you understand that, you know. 99% of the capital gain you're chasing comes from the location. It comes from uh, your neighbours being involved in community gardening, from planting trees, from improving the roads, improving the schools. All those things add to locational value. And so what they do is smash down the beautiful old weatherboard homes that used to be the bedrock of affordable housing. And over their three to seven, maybe 10-year investment cycle, they get a subsidy on paying their property taxes of somewhere between 10 to 30% per annum below what the neighboring family home has to pay. So this idea of unearned income is nothing new. I mean, you go back, you know, the Roman times and people are having unearned income then. Is this something that people are just striving for? Is this something that, you know, owning land should be something that somebody should be having a goal of and I shouldn't be jealous because my next door neighbor owns a lot of property and he has passed it down through generation through generation. Should I just should I just try it harder to buy land? Well, that's what they're telling us according to the current system. And it's a beautiful form of stifling alternatives to the current agenda. You know, how many activists do you know where say, oh, sorry, dude, I can't come uh, to that meeting tonight. I've got to work some overtime. You know, I've got to pay the rent. And so it's always our first priority to pay our rent. But for government, they do everything they can to actually look at housing bubbles, look at land bubbles, dare I say, and really uh, knock them on the head. And so the property lobby have reframed unearned income and they call it passive income. And that's their euphemism for saying uh, what John Stuart Mill said, that landlords earn money in their sleep. This is a, a huge wedge in the social contract that's driving this wealth gap as uh, people can buy and sell and make uh, you know, 30, 50 grand a year, taking these returns of 15 to 20% a year with rental-backed securities. And the local people have no real alternative because there isn't enough places to live because these speculators are buying more and more properties up and holding them empty, forcing prices up. We, we uh, have a problem with this sort of wealth envy that's out there when you when you do see some of your friends who, who buy and sell real estate and, and you ask yourself, geez, uh, you know, what should I really be doing? But uh, when you look at how much pain it's causing society, uh, we, we have to recognise that these unearned incomes could actually be financing government and we can tell this story so that right-wingers will be attracted to the fact that there's less income taxes, there's less sales taxes, less company taxes even. We're willing to go that far. You, you know, There's so many examples of General Electric and VeriSign. All of these companies are paying virtually zero company tax. So let's just write it off, capture this unearned income, which will turn the current speculative economy into one that's 
prioritizing production and productive entrepreneurial activities. So that's what we can talk about to the right wing. But for the left, what happens when this process is in place is that we get an easy mechanism for self-funding public transport. There's a, a motivation for decentralization. Let's turn around this urbanization all around the world. At the same time as decentralization, there's a, a pressure to build upwards in the prime uh, central locations. Part of this whole earth rights democracy of us all having some birthright, some place on this planet to call our own, uh, uh, we need to incorporate the externalities. The, the true cost economics really needs to come through. We're talking about true cost economics there, and a uh, theme of our show is ecological economics and pricing in those ecosystem impacts that our activities have on the planet, and also valuing nature for what it does for us in our economic system because so much of our economic activity just you know assumes these as free inputs and so what are kind of the environmental um, ramifications of implementing a land tax how does this deal with climate change reduce our carbon emissions or deal with mining or oil extraction at the moment with all of the, the resource pillaging barely being taxed around the world the incentive to invest capital in those fields is so much larger than it would be than if we were capturing some 40 percent of the value of what's being extracted from the earth and so once that happens it pulls out the profit motive there and gives an incentive when combined with carbon taxes to actually look at green industry as a, as a way forward, as, as a replacement for this horribly damaging uh, activity we're performing on this dear planet. And when it comes to land taxes themselves, this form of urban consolidation where all of these empty homes are um, encouraged to go on the market. This urban infill, according to some study here in Australia at the Curtin University by Professor Peter Newman, urban infill is half the cost of expanding the size of the city. When you look at uh, all the infrastructure services that are already there, and we see so many municipalities around America, around the world, really struggling to pay for their police, their ambulance, you know, replacing potholes in roads. All of these things become easier when we move closer together in a way uh, through all these empty properties that we're being conditioned to ignore as we walk to the train station. Yeah, well, one of the big challenges in Vancouver is that our transit actually shouldn't have that many issues considering the density, but it actually does have a lot of issues because of the number of vacant properties that exist on so many of these different lines. And so I wanted to ask about different places in the world that are actually implementing something that looks like the uh, land tax or implementing something that is a land tax and how it's playing out for those places. Talking transport, there's a bit of a misnomer in the West that you just can't have a profitable public transport system. But throughout Asia, there's plenty of examples, uh, no less than in Japan and Hong Kong. And the Japanese have an amazing system where I think they haven't increased their fare prices since the, the mid-80s. But what they do is they capture the land rents surrounding the train station. So they get given the development rights to build an apartment store with some offices above that, and then above that, uh, maybe six or seven stories of apartments. And every year, instead of selling those properties outright, they lease them out. 
And over time, as uh, society improves, as technology develops, the rents naturally increase there. And instead of those increased rents going into the hands of the one percenters, they're going back to finance better development through the infrastructure network in Japan. Hong Kong does. So these are owned by the transport agencies themselves? Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a company in Hong Kong called MTR, which for the last five years has delivered uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in dividends to their shareholders, as well as providing one of the world's best public transport systems. Um, and in terms of other examples of these resource rents, you know, these earth rents being used for the public's benefit, in America, there's really no better example than the Alaska Permanent Trust Fund. And so Alaska has been very effective in reducing their wealth gap there. And there's some sort of term for when Alaskans get paid their citizens dividend each year and they all go skiing in the Alps over there in Canada, which is probably the wrong thing to be doing with their cash, but uh, they've got the opportunity to be doing this stuff. And in a way they're saying to everyone, look, we could all be having a great time if we could just share some of this money with the wider public. You know, why does it only go to shareholders? Aren't we all shareholders on this earth? And so that's the great discord that's occurred with this two-dimensional economic system we have now is that we're, we're told by people uh, in the neoclassical profession that these unearned incomes, these economic rents are only worth 1% to 2% of GDP. And I've just released this report called The Total Resource Rents of Australia, which finds these economic rents at 23.6% of GDP. And this is something that humans have done throughout history. I mean, there's there's countless examples of humans coming in and taking land away from other humans. You know, in your country and even in my, in my country as well, you know, Europeans coming in and taking over land. Why do you think that this happens? Why do humans steal from one another? Why are they so mean to one another in this way? Is this is this human nature? Is this something that we just have to get get over? Is this something that we need to build around? How do we get past this fact? that humans do steal from one another and, and don't really care. Yeah, I wish I had the answer to that um, that psychological matrix there. But, uh, you know, essentially what we're seeing is a hangover from this colonial mentality of being able to rape and pillage the earth as a way to make easy money. And urban land is seen as an invisible oil well in terms of the value it delivers. And we only have to look at people like Donald Trump and co and how much money they make uh, just buying and selling resources to, to recognize that this is a an, an huge advantage over the rest of society. The psychological effect that has, the disempowerment it has in terms of power structures really turns people off from looking at the deeper causes on, on why this is occurring. And, and you're right, people do do think that this is just a, a natural outcome. But when we look at our kids and how willing they are to share, and we look through the educational process on how that is uh, rammed out of them, you really have to hope that it's not too late to, to recognize that we really need this next economy, you know, one where we do have this earth rights democracy, we can have an impetus for green growth that doesn't come at a cost of the planet. And so I wanted to ask why it is that some of the big mainstream economists like, say, Paul Krugman wouldn't point to a land tax as a policy to advocate for. Yeah, well, it's absolutely phenomenal how few economists will talk about this because what we're talking about, you know, it's seen as the most efficient tax out there. Land tax is established in economic theory as 
the best way to finance government. But unfortunately, uh, we live in an era of what I've nicknamed lobbyocracy, the hypocrisy of democracy. And one vote, one value has been replaced by one dollar for one decision. And we have this tragic scenario where politicians have to pawn their policies to pay for advertising on what was once known as the public airwaves. And this trend filters down through the universities and people who do talk about addressing unearned income are ostracized through the, the, the tenure process. And there's a fantastic book by Mason Gaffney and Fred Harrison called The Corruption of Economics, which really tracks this whole move from classical to neoclassical economics. And it's just uh, amazing how many retired economists and professors uh, all of a sudden come out of the closet and say, yes. We believe in Henry George. We believe this is uh, the best system forward. But uh, for those in their 30s and 40s, paranoia of having to make your uh, monthly mortgage payments keeps everyone in line. So what's the other side of this argument here? People that are in power, that are holding these lands, say that they are uh, taking a risk, right? They're, they're playing the odds of the market. They're saying that, you know, I'm holding this land and there's a, there's a real, real, uh, real possibility it might go down. Where does that risk versus reward play into this equation here? Yeah, well, you just have to look at the returns you can earn in a bank. And whilst at the moment they're pretty low at 2 or 3%, on, a, on the long-term averages, it's been around 5 or 6%. And if you're in small business, you're wrapped if you can earn 6%. And a medium-sized business will be aiming for 8%. If you're in the share market, uh, maybe you get up to 10%, but for so long, property prices have been delivering 15% plus returns. And so it can be shown that these natural advantages are so significant, but for, for property owners to say that there's a, a genuine return on this income is just, it's laughed at in the economics profession because you, you don't have to do anything and any bets there'll be listeners to this podcast on a train on a bike somewhere and they'll be going past a piece of property that's full of rubbish you know you can throw as much rubbish on it as you want and still it will go up in value and that is why it's decried as an unearned income and that's why we have to be able to turn around and, and say to these people look you haven't done anything for society to deserve this money and we could make life better for so many people if we push the price down of land using land taxes we simplified the tax system getting rid of sales tax, company tax, all these other things, there's less paperwork. So with cheap land, less paperwork, less taxes, more small business will start up and that will then lead to competition in the wage fronts and our wages will increase as land prices fall. And all of a sudden we have more money to be able to put food in our belly and buy those uh, organics that we need to start re-sculpting society. So many people in the right in the U.S. and in a lot of other countries want to criticize people who receive government benefits as receiving some form of unearned income. Why would the situation for these property speculators be any different and why aren't they targeted in you know the whole kind of uh, argument that people are getting money uh, without working? Yeah, well, that's exactly the, the line of thinking we, we need to be pushing. And uh, here in Australia, they call them dole bludgers. And our treasurer, our new conservative treasurer is talking about this age of entitlement for those on welfare. But because so few economists actually look at how much 
land prices are increasing, it's not in the mainstream uh, analysis. And so we've heard that Paul Krugman and others say that economic rents are only worth 1%, but land rents themselves are 14.2% here in Australia. So when 14% of the economy is a free lunch just for those who own the land, uh, there's a very powerful medium there for people to say, look, uh, land prices increased in Australia some $180 billion last year, but the people who are being blamed are being paid about $5 billion a year in uh, New Start welfare payments here. So uh, this is why uh, I'm passionate about this total resource rents report, because not only is it 14.2% just in the land market, but there's some 6.6% for natural monopolies, 2.8% could be uh, garnered from our mining sector, and then sin tax is around about 2% as well. And uh, we could basically pay for all of government and there'd be something there for those on the right, something there for those on the left. And really the neocons would have nowhere to hide because we've got the most efficient tax here using the land tax system and they're getting uh, zero company and income taxes. So there's a lot of traction moving through uh, bodies, uh, dare I say it, like the World Bank and IMF, uh, where they're saying, look, it's undeniable with climate change we've got coming up. We're already starting to see that 1% is buying up uh, high lands in Bangladesh and just sitting there waiting for these rising tide waters and, and floods to come through. And they're just going to be cleaning up in, in years to come. And so we need a more flexible system. And that's what this whole way of thinking promotes. So realistically, do we see a way for these tax law reforms to become a reality You know, within my lifetime, within my kid's lifetime? Is this something that we're going to be seeing moving or does this does this mean a whole change to a system that is just so very old and broken that it's just not going to happen? It really depends on how far people are willing to look into this and learn because if we do ask the right questions of our MPs, do all those basic campaigning angles, there's no reason why this can't be implemented, but it is going to be the battle of the centuries because uh, pre-World War One, there was a very famous legislative bill through the UK called the People's Budget. And no less than Winston Churchill was championing this whole system we've been talking about today. And it passed through the House of Commons pretty easy. But when it got to the House of Lords, the House of Landlords, of course, uh, it took months and months of debate. And in the end, it got spat out. Uh, instead of uh, targeting unearned income, it became a welfare-dependent model and we've suffered ever since. So I'm confident that if people uh, would spend you know, six or seven hours a year um, protesting and, and really looking at this sort of uh, hard-nosed economic reform, we can beat the right wing at their own game in terms of efficiency. And as we bring that through, the sustainability frontier will also benefit. Well, how do I have time to protest when I got so much rent to pay? You know, that's... <laughs> the rent's too <laughs> damn high. The, the rent yeah. is too <laughs> damn high. And, uh, that's, it's too damn high. It's a great line uh, that uh, that guy in New York's come up with. And, uh, you know, just so many people around the world are hurting from property speculation and these high prices. When you look at the priorities you've got each and every week, uh, I just hope more people can look into this because... You 
you know, here in Australia, investors are now some 38, 40% of the market, up from 12% in the, in the 80s. So uh, it, it's just continuing to skyrocket. The road to neo-serfdom is upon us virtually. And unless we fight back whilst we still have some sort of open net neutrality going on, it's harrowing to think what could be coming up in the future. Yeah, so to close out, um, someone who's listening to everything we've been talking about and maybe coming across the idea of land taxes or Henry George for the first time, what are some resources that they can dive into? What are some movements around the world that are working on this? And then leave us with any other thoughts that that, uh, we didn't touch on. Realestateforransom.com is the film I made a couple of years ago. I'd love more people to see it. It's only had about 70,000 views. But yeah, that's a short, sharp overview on this whole story. Uh, I do a weekly podcast as well called The Renegade Economists here in Australia. So uh, if you go to prosper.org.au forward slash radio, that's prosper.org.au forward slash radio, you'll see uh, links there to the podcast. And uh, yeah, it's amazing the amount of talented people that are working on this around the world. So uh, plenty of good information there. That website, Prosper, has the total resource rents report on it. So uh, make sure you um, check that one out because it does spell out that it's more than land we need. We need to target water rights. You know, they're water trading. This is what's coming through. We've got so much money being made in uh, the geosatellite uh, uh, orbits that are going on up there. The, the guys who got in on that first are just cleaning up. You know, we've got concerns over the privatization of our DNA, uh, the forestry write-offs. There's just so much going on when it just comes to the Earth's resources, these natural monopolies. But in terms of other things, uh, there's a group on Facebook just simply called LVT for land value tax. So LVT is a great spot there. Uh, There's um, in the UK a group called landvaluetax.org, I think they are, and they've had a lot of uh, success with George Monbiot and people like that uh, referencing them. And it's just phenomenal the sort of traction that this whole discussion is having in the UK. It really is probably the number one hotspot for reform at the moment. So that's landvaluetax.org. In America, there's a a fantastic woman named Alana Hartsock. She does a a course and she's a UN representative, but her website's earthrights.net. And of course, the master blaster, michael-hudson.com, michael-hudson.com. He is just a walking dictionary on on this side of things. So uh, yeah, there's there's plenty to read his latest book, The Bubble and Beyond. Uh, There's uh, all sorts of work. Printing money doesn't produce goods and services. It doesn't hire people. It may seem like the right short-term medicine, but can the cure be worse than the disease in some cases? A house, as we know it, has devolved from somewhere to live to a traded commodity. 
Most of us would like to have something for nothing. But the truth is that we can't have that. The big issue I see is, is speculation. It's the speculation of investment in the housing market that's driving the price up. Our economic system has been corrupted over time. Classical economics stopped being taught, especially after 1980. They dropped economic history from the academic curriculum. Entrepreneurs have been surpassed by speculators in the capitalist food chain. Today, a free market means an extractive economy in which wealth flows from the bottom of the pyramid to the top of the economic pyramid. Okay, fine, so be it. I can't buy a house, but I don't want to live in a hole and pay terrible rent for it. This is a clear, clear case of real estate for ransom. My children can't afford to pay rent or college tuition. I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to kick ass. You tell them what I said. I'm not playing games. A one-bedroom apartment, $3,800 a month. Five kids sleeping in one room. The walls are so damn thin, you can hear the neighbor making love in the next, in the next apartment. Ooh, ooh, baby, oh, daddy, oh, good. The walls are so thin, my neighbor went to the bathroom the other day and fought it, and I heard it. And I'm not going to tolerate that. Why? Because the rent. It's too damn high. I'm Jimmy McMillan of the Rent Too Damn High Party. I'm on Extra Environmentalist. And that does it for 2013 at the Extra Environmentalist. Brian Check and Carl Fitzgerald close out our interviews for the year. And so before we close out for the year, we wanted to first off thank all of the people who've been extremely generous in their donations in supporting the Extra Environmentalist over the holiday season during the last few weeks. We put a Bitcoin tip jar up on our episode post, and we were really excited to see some micro donations come in. So thanks to the email addresses that we have for those Bitcoin micro donations. Bitcoin is so great for sending little bits of money all around the world. You can send little bits of Bitcoins all around the world. Thanks also to Bruce. Thank you so very much, Bruce. And also thanks to Bill in New York, who sent in a donation that he said is in the spirit of the holidays. He wanted to give something back for giving him useful and thought-provoking information week after week that helps him get through long, boring days of data entry at work. Well, don't worry, Bill. We're definitely going to keep it coming in 2014. All the way from Germany, we had Christian sending us in a very generous donation. And we also got a donation from Wayne the Pain in Seattle, Washington. And so thanks for that, Wayne. And thanks for pointing out the importance of transcending the fear and getting into the love. And I hope that our interviews and conversations can help people do that. Anders from Sweden sent us a very generous donation. We have had such fantastic support from Scandinavia over the years. And he uh, actually donated enough to get a t-shirt but then decided that he doesn't want us to ship the t-shirt all the way over across the ocean to his home in Sweden so he opted only to get the stickers and that's always an option when donating to the show if you don't want to get the free gifts that we send out for a donation over $30 please let us know and we will be happy to send you whatever that is that you would like and speaking of t-shirts and donations we've been working on a t-shirt design we finally have the t-shirt design finished and we have the shirts getting ready to be printed by the time they're shipped, we should be getting the first shirt sent out towards the end of January, middle of February. And looking back through our list of people who've donated, 
it looks like we haven't been sending out shirts. We haven't really sent out shirts since last February. So our dearest apologies to everybody who's donated and is waiting. We have all of those in a spreadsheet. So we'll be sending those out as soon as we can in early 2014. So this year has been a wild ride for the extra environmentalists here and a wild ride for the world in general. 2013 has seen a lot of new and interesting episodes on this show and a lot of new and interesting events happening around the world. Justin, what are a few of your favorites? For me, the most exciting parts of 2013 have been seeing that online community of the extra environmentalists grow to hear from so many different parts of the world where people are listening to our shows, finding an interest in in what we're talking about and the kinds of topics that we cover. And in my life, I've been able to finally shed a lot of the responsibilities and other things that have detracted me from doing the things that I really want to do, such as write and read and do scholarly work at the University of British Columbia, where I'm pursuing my PhD, and also to find more time, more regular time to work on the show so we can hopefully get a little bit more of a a regular release schedule for our podcasts. And this show really is so much more than just than just a podcast. It's really all of those people who are part of that online community who also do things in the physical world together as well. And so it's just truly an incredible project to be a part of. That every year we kind of reflect back on what the extra environmentalist has done this year or, or how, how it has evolved. And it's a very organic process. The people that kind of show up in, in our extra environmentalist world are fantastic. Our team has been so amazing working with the people that have just donated their time and effort to the show. It makes it so enjoyable for Justin and I to work on this thing. We couldn't do it without Kevin, our audio editor, Chris, our web genie, Louisa, our blog editor, and even our newest member, Michelle. She's been she's done some great video work for us. The team that we have on this show is fantastic, and we really could not do it without people pitching in their time and effort to make the extra environmentalist what it is. Thanks so much for everyone who has helped us with the show this year. We do Facebook. We do Twitter. X Environmental is our handle. Find us on Stitcher Radio. Find us on our website extraenvironmentalist.com. All these places to find free archived episodes of The Extra Environmentalist are there for you to share with your friends, your family, remix into awesome songs, put them into your ringtone on your cell phone, burn them out to CDs and give them to your grandmother to play in her car driving down the street. If you want to contact the show, send us an email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. Find us on Skype, extraenvironmentalist. You can leave us a voicemail with your comments, criticisms, or beatbox tunes at plus one nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two. Get ready for 2014. It's a year full of possibilities. fire broke out over there. You left the stove on and there's a fire extinguisher over there. You don't just sit around talking about it. You get up, you grab that fire extinguisher and you go put out the fire. Doing something right now, doing it fast makes sense when you know what to do. You could say that the world's on fire right now. So why are we sitting around? The problem is that we don't have a big enough fire extinguisher. We don't know what to do. The situation that the world faces is more like you see a fire there, and over there, and over there, and everywhere, and all the buildings in the neighborhood are on fire. And you just have a fire extinguisher. Are you gonna run into that inferno and start spraying it around, knowing that it won't do any good? 
probably what you need to do is to tell everybody. And then, what if people don't believe you? You're like, hey, look, flames, smoke, look, the neighborhood's on fire. And they're like, if the neighborhood were really on fire, then everybody would be in an uproar about it. But they're not. Everybody's talking about Kim Kardashian's underwear, you know, or lack thereof. If the world were really on fire, if global warming were really that much of a threat, if the situation at Fukushima were really that bad, and deforestation, if the oceans were really being emptied of fish, people wouldn't be talking about all those kinds of things. We're surrounded by these signifiers of normality, which makes it hard even for ourselves to believe that the world is on fire. So in those situations, what do you do? What happens when people don't listen to you? What happens then when you realize maybe that the way you're talking to them is turning them off? Like maybe there's something inside of you and maybe the world being on fire reflects something inside of yourself too. So then, then you are called to do spiritual work maybe, to do work on the level of relationship, the level of communication. Sometimes we realize that all of the things that we've been doing are just contributing to the problem. It's like a man running around a maze and he's, he's desperate to get out. He's running faster and faster, and he's not getting anywhere. He's hitting dead ends, he's coming back to the center, and a little voice in him says, dude, you just gotta stop. You're not getting anywhere. But he says, no, no, no. If I stop, I'll never get out, because I'm only gonna get out if I use my feet. So I better keep running. But eventually he gets tired and he does stop. And when he does, and he pauses, he realizes that there's a pattern to this maze and he begins to understand why he's been running in circles. And he realizes that there were other passages that he was running too fast to see. And then he can begin to follow a different path. I think that our civilization is stuck in these kind of habitual ways of doing things. For example, the paradigm of control, of the technological fix. And we've got to stop. Part of the transition is maybe a period of non-doing, you know, a period of latency, a period of, of stepping into the mystery and letting go of our habitual responses to things. next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we speak with John Michael Greer about his new book, Green Wizards. When, when you start talking about voluntary simplicity, Henry David Thoreau, who actually invented the concept, called it voluntary poverty. But you can't call it that nowadays because people get scared. Nothing panics Americans more, more certainly than the thought that they might be mistaken for somebody who makes less money than they do. So people panicked at that. They created this idea of voluntary simplicity. And if you'll notice, it actually costs more money and involves more conspicuous consumption to do the voluntary simplicity thing of buying all of these simple products that you find advertised in the um, glossy, heavily advertisement-rich voluntary simplicity magazines and so on. It's just another form of conspicuous consumption. Um, 
there is such a thing as actually living a simpler lifestyle, actually embracing Thoreau's concept of voluntary poverty. Um, there is such a thing as looking at your lifestyle and saying, why am I wasting so much money and energy and so much of a share of the planet when it's not even making me happy? And there's all kinds of other good things, but Green Wizardry goes beyond that. more to tell you but for right now let's get out to the center of Times Square for the raising of the New Year's Eve ball. Hey, I'm Ponzi the Clown. And while the ball of debt is going up behind us over Times Square, we're here on Ponzi the Clown's New Year's Rockin' Eve 2014, along with Alex Jones's mother. Alex has made me be on television. I don't know why, but I guess we're going to talk about all the things that happened this year and some of the great times that we had or something like that. Yeah, We're going to be recapping some of our top moments of 2013. But before we do that, we've got to get out to our special correspondent at the North Pole, who's recapping some of the latest technological advances that Santa Claus used to deliver presents this year. <laughs> hey! Hey, I'm Comet the Reindeer, and this is an inside scoop of what's happening at the North Pole. It all started when Santa Claus got inspired by Amazon's drone delivery program to change all of his reindeer into drones. Santa got so inspired to make all of his deliveries by drones that he got rid of all of his reindeer, even me, and now he's using drones to deliver all of his presents. He's been treating the elves like Chinese iPhone workers. Stringing up nets outside the windows to keep them from falling out. You're an elf, and that helps me with all the increased technology, the electricity usage and heat output of the North Pole has increased dramatically. Climate change has already put the North Pole into a precarious position. But now with Santa's increased technology use and electricity output, the heat generated by Santa's workshop has made the North Pole begin sinking into the ground. Even though the drones are delivering all the presents in record amounts of time, Santa is on his way down. I've got some bad news, folks. Slowly unraveling into a pit of despair <laughs> and depression. Hey, I'm really excited about how drones are being deployed at the North Pole and creating lots of unemployed elves. I hated Santa Claus anyway, he's stupid. Ponzi, we need to hurry up before this giant ball of dead hits the ground and my brain explodes from drinking too much eggnog. Hey, that's right, Alex Jones' mother. This giant ball of dead is getting ready to drop behind us to bring in the exciting year of 2014. So to wrap up 2013 and the continued unwinding of the global Ponzi that we call our economic system, we're going to recap some of the top moments in the ongoing collapse of the international monetary paradigm with this clip montage.
savers are withdrawing cash from their accounts. Now this means that there really is a cash problem on the ground. We've seen Cypriots going out to ATMs early in the morning trying to get as much cash as they could. Now some have told me that the, the limit on their cards to the amount that they can take from the bank has changed. It has been lowered. From the place where the protests in Brazil started, they're on the streets again. Street protests are engulfing Turkish cities. What started a few days ago as a peaceful environmental rally has snowballed into the largest outpouring of public anger the country has seen in years. You can turn over every single bit of this chemical weapons to the international community in the next week. Turn it over, all of it, uh, without delay, and allow a full and total accounting for that. Uh, but he isn't about to do it, and it, it can't be done, obviously. The United States is only two days away from financial collapse. Unless lawmakers can strike a budget deal to avoid default, rival Democrats and Republicans have been stuck in a loop for over two weeks, with most government work crippled. They're just going to play a game for a while, jerk us all around. I, I don't even pay attention. I guess you have to because you're a journalist, but... This is a charade. This is a sham. But uh, the U.S. debt is growing and the debt ceiling uh, still hasn't uh, been fixed. Uh, is, can we say that America is on the brink of default? No, they're not on the brink of default, Julia, because they can print as much money as they want. The United States has taken lethal, targeted action against Al-Qaeda and its associated forces including with remotely piloted aircraft commonly referred to as drones. Much of 2013's headlines were dominated by Edward Snowden's revelations about the surveillance programs of the U.S. National Security Agency. Twitter is making a strong impression on Wall Street. We're here at Google's headquarters in New York City to see the company's Project Glass, the wearable computing device it's been working on for a couple of years. You guys see Bitcoin is good, and it does have a little bit of a Farmville casino gulag look to it how everyone's out there mining it and like mad if you don't totally lay down and love it i mean i'm just kind of ambiguous on bitcoin and have a bad feeling in my stomach well you you run ads for bitcoin on your show i'm trying to get inside your brain it's, it's not pretty very right easy. now it'd be not your fist Alex. but your brain that did it Extra environmentalist wishes you a happy start to 2014.